This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 7, Episode 18, Discovering Your Voice. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And once again, we are recording live at Life, Universe, and Everything at UVU. And we have special guest star, James A. Owen. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> James is the guest of honor at this conference. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I've been doing creative work for a living um, since before I needed to make a living. And actually started doing this professionally while I was still living at home and could therefore make all sorts of mistakes and survive them. And uh, have, have never really done anything else. You know, the same can be true said of a lot of artists that you know, they, they do their work while still living with mom. Oh. <laughs> Best starter business ever. James, you actually um, suggested this panel. Why don't you tell me the story you tell them the story you told me when I was asking what we should talk about. Um, we were talking about finding your own voice, and uh, the series of books that I wrote first are the ones that have not been available in the U.S., and it's a series called Mythworld that I wrote for a German publisher. And I wrote them in English, they translated them into German, and I wrote the second book first, then the first book, and these were my first novels. I did comics before, but not novels. And I started worrying about my voice. And I'd become acquainted at that time with Orson Scott Card. So I rewrote a section of the first book and sent him both pieces and said, I'd like your opinion on this. And he wrote back and he said, James, you have a dark, droll sense of humor. And you need to follow that because it's very authentic and you're very funny. And that's what your first sample was. Authentic, funny, and I enjoyed it. The second sample sounded like you were trying to win an American Book Award. <laughs> and I hated it. <laughs> and I was, I was writing, trying to, to write the story in a way I thought would impress other right. people. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to do what I, I thought would elevate my voice and use more formal language and cut out the humor. And he said, you wrote something that you know, connected A to B to C, and all the words were there, and the story was there, but the heart was gone. Any of the rest of you guys had that experience? Mary, you're opening your mouth. You look like you might. No. I know. Uh, well, this is. This You've is always a, had your voice from the beginning. <laughs> from the womb, Mary has a voice. No. Well, it's tricky for me because I spent so much of my time in live theater. And so I, I really spent, I think, in some ways, was developing my voice, that, mm -hmm. the ability to connect with an audience there. Right. So when I started writing, I, you know, that, that may be a part of the writing process that I. I learned in another right. field. Um, I remember hearing, the first time I heard voice, um, it was in high school, and the teacher was saying, and you know, the voice of the writing, she was telling, doing this whole lecture on it, and I was completely baffled by what the concept of the voice was. Um, and since that time, I've met lots of other writers that voice is one of those things that just seems to baffle everyone. Nobody knows really how to define voice or how to develop it until they actually become professional writers. And it just kind of, for a lot of them, just clicks like, oh yeah, I know what my voice is now. Um, and for me, that's kind of what happened with me. 
Um, I, I muddled through this and trying to figure out, like I, I put so much work into trying to discover a voice that I overworked it in a lot of ways like James is talking about. That it, voice is actually something you develop naturally. And yet we talk about how important it is. I, can you see how hard it is for new writers then? You talk about how important it is to have a unique voice and then they work on it and they flub it dramatically. My experience is very similar and I'm going to give a specific you know, piece of advice. I was writing fantasy books forever. I wrote uh, five fantasy books before I got published. And it's because that's what I read a lot. That's what I wanted to write. And it wasn't until I gave myself the liberty to just write anything at all and ended up writing a horror novel that got published very quickly because I wasn't trying to force myself into this other mold that I thought was what I wanted or I thought was what the market wanted. It was just whatever I wanted to do. And that's how I found it, was giving myself that freedom he discovered that he has the voice of a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the thing that we're hitting on, um, which actually parallels with puppetry, is, is the freedom to stop worrying about how to do it and to just, to just speak what, is, you know, what you're excited about, to, to oh. just tell the story that you are excited and passionate it, about. Excitement. And, and the voice will take care of itself. In, in puppetry, we talk about that you need to learn the techniques and have them down cold so that you can get out of the way and let the art happen. Mm. And I, I feel like that's very much the same thing with writing, that you need to know how to do all of these specific things, but that the voice, the voice is you. And so when you're first learning to write, it's not so much that you're learning to, how to find your voice, it's that you are learning how to get the techniques out of the way so that you can express yourself freely. Right, right. So you don't have to focus paragraph by paragraph as much on how to get these other things right, it can start to flow more naturally. Mm -hmm. James, you were going to say well, something. Um, excitement has to be a big part of it because if, if you're not excited about the work you're doing, no one else is going to be either. And a lot of finding your voice involves getting out of your own way. Mm. You know, not trying to manage that process. I, I, I get questions a lot because my books are published as YA. And on writing panels, people say, well, what's the difference between writing for YA and middle grade versus writing for adults? And I answer, I haven't the faintest idea, because I didn't write these books um, specifically for YA. It was a children's editor that liked them the most. I simply wrote them and wrote the story I was excited to tell. And, and then when my manager called, she says, we've just gotten an offer on Here There Be Dragons. And I said, great, say yes. And she says, wait. And, and I said, what? And she says, it's a great offer. And I said, great, say yes. And she says, wait. It's, it, it's going to be newsworthy. It'll be in the trade papers. And I said, please, just say yes. And she says, wait, you need to understand. It's from the head of the children's division. And we weren't planning for that, but that's who liked it the most. And if you say yes, you are forever going to be branding yourself as a children's book author, and you have to decide right now if you're okay with that. And I put down the phone and turned around and looked at the row of Harry Potter books on my shelf. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I'm good with this. Um, yeah, applause for James. <laughs> uh, this is probably a downer after that story. I'm working on the art for the Schlock Mercenary board game. And one of the things that has to be drawn is uh, the framing for the pictures. You know, the, the cards and the, the, the templates and... There's you know, little boxes and widgets and windows and whatever else. And when I looked at the mock-up design that was all done in Illustrator, 
I, you know, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, that's fine. You know, this is a window where a character picture goes, this is a window where a button goes. And the guy says, no, we need you to draw that. Well, you just drew it in Illustrator, it looks great, those lines are perfect. They don't want perfect lines. What I had to do is, what I'm still doing, is looking at what they drew in Illustrator to show you know, where all these things go. And then I sit down with graph paper and pencil the perfect lines on the graph paper. And then I chuck the pencil, grab a pen, I'm not allowed to use a ruler or a circle template or anything like that, and I freehand these shapes. Why? Because, and this is the analog for voice, my hand wobbles in a way peculiar to me while I'm drawing those lines, and people can tell. Mm -hmm. If I draw a straight, if I draw a straight line with a straight edge, it's sterile, it could have been anybody. What they want is the cookie that can only be baked in my brain. <laughs> wow. That's the name of my next book, actually. <laughs> James, um, I, I want to just jump on this one while it's hot, because okay. you do illustration as well. Yes. Um, and how do you then match like, the voice of the prose and the illustration, and it, how does this all work together for you? Uh, because I, I started out in comic books doing a series called Star Child, I was used to illustrating my own stories. So when I moved over to novels, that was part of the deal, is I would do the cover art and illustrate the chapters in the old Arthur Rackham, you know, N.C. Mm -hmm. Wyeth style. And, and to me, um, I do a one-page outline of the books, which is chapter titles and little notes in the margins about the plot line and where I want it to go, but then I do thumbnails for each of the chapters. So I have a roadmap and the key visuals. And if I hit a chapter where I can't come up with a good enough image <coughs> for, for an illustration, to me, that means something's wrong with the writing. Wow, that's interesting, that's fascinating. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, now, our book of the week, we're going to pick one of your books. Okay. Um, and um, they won't be able to see the illustrations in the Audible edition. <coughs> um, but you do have a website. Yes. Um, and your website is? Uh, HereThereBeDragons.net. And I assume we can see some of your illustration on your website as oh, well. Oh, yes, and it, it links to my Facebook where I'm allowed to actually post works in progress. Mm. So pencils and inks and, and illustrations of the new books. It's really cool. Um, Not that I'm a fan or anything. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about your book, Here There Be Dragons. Okay. Uh, just give us a 30-second blurb on it. Uh, Here There Be Dragons is the first in the Chronicles of the Imaginarium Geographica, which is an atlas of maps of every land you've ever read about and every myth, legend, fable, and fairy tale. And famous authors and artists and scientists throughout history have been the caretakers of this book. And the story begins with three young men meeting in London in 1917 when one of their mentors was murdered because he was the caretaker of this book. And they're given the book and told they're now the guardians of that book 
and all the lands mapped within it. Wow, that sounds awesome. Thank you. <laughs> how are, Head how can they get on it? out to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse. You can pick up a copy of Here, they be, Here There Be Dragons by James A. Owen and uh, kick off a 14-day free trial membership uh, with that in your downloads. Now, Dan, there was a, there's a time I actually cut you off just a few minutes ago. Did you have something you were just dying to add, or is the moment gone? Is it dead? No, I was actually going to say, let's do a book of the week. Oh, so. were you? <laughs> ah, which we've done that now. Um, and well, so I'm good. I want, to, I want to get to this idea of developing your voice, um, because I, I, we're talking about just letting it go naturally, um, which is good advice. And yet, I do think there are things you can actively do to nurture it. And I choose the word nurture intentionally, rather than forcing a voice. I do think as a writer, one of the things I'm big on as a writer is learning what works for you and learning how to enhance your ability to do that. Finding out what, uh, what parts of, of fiction you're particularly good at and trying to write stories that emphasize that. Just like our, our, our guest last week you know, knew that he loved guns and then was able to write stories that enhance his love of guns and take advantage of it and turn them into great stories. I think you can do this with anything. You can, and I think your voice is the same way. You find out what's working in your voice and then you run with it. That's what Dan, what you did for I'm Not a Serial Killer, is you found something that worked wonderfully and you just built an entire book around it. And yeah. so what advice can we give to people about how to nurture their voice? Well, I mean, the, the first thing, like you're saying, is, is uh, that it comes from something that you love. So step one is love something. And so step slightly before one is get out and learn as much stuff as you can, okay? Whether it's puppetry or guns or serial killers or, which are all three very creepy things. Um, you, know, you have to have a life outside of writing. You One have of to have hobbies. Like you have other. to do something and be passionate about it because then you, ha it, it, it's not enough to be good at writing. You have to have something to say. I don't know why you think puppets are creepy. <laughs> Yeah, only because you, 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 you post tweets about, I've got Thor's head on my mantle. <laughs> I did have to leave, leave a leg at the mailbox before I left. So. I'm going to have to shave these toes before I go to, go to dinner. Okay, one, one quick side this? note. Mar Mary on her Twitter feed will all the time post these really creepy, vague things that are half puppet making, and, but they sound out of context like she's been murdering and dismembering somebody. And so... We, so many comments will come through and say, oh, that sounds like one of Dan Wells' tweets. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and so uh, she, she and I decided as an experiment once that she would start tweeting segments of my book <laughs> to see who picked up on it that realized it was not a puppetry tweet. And it, we actually, it, it took a while. It yeah. took longer than, than we expected. Yeah, and strangely, those were the ones that did not get the, that sounds like something Dan would write. <laughs> I think my favorite comment was, are you writing erotic steampunk? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Dan is. That's the unspoken <laughs> subtext of a Dan Wells novel. Now I have a question for Mary, okay? Yes. Um, you, with uh, Glamour and Glass and all, all of these books that you are writing, um, you have tried very, very specifically to copy, to some extent, uh, Jane Austen's voice and style. So how do you justify that with your own voice and style? This is where I think the word voice gets, gets muddy because I think there is the, the narrative voice of the work in which I am trying to copy the Jane Austen feel. And then there is the voice of the author, which is what you specifically have to say in the way, the way in which you choose to present it. Um, so far, I think we've mostly been talking about the author voice, mm. um, which, is, which is a different animal. Um, 
the way in which to develop a narrative voice is to basically try to internalize someone else's work. When I'm writing the Glamour and Glass and the, and the, uh, the Glamorous History books, I sit down and, and basically, while I am in process, I don't read anything that is out of period. Um, mm. I don't read modern literature when I'm working on those, which is, fortunately, I'm a fast writer because otherwise that would get really <laughs> frustrating. But, um, but that is, part of that is to get my mind working in those ways. And, and again, it's about having a technique down so that I can get out of the way of the art so that, like, I do not, when I'm sitting there writing these, I do not sit there and worry about word choice. I go back and deal with that later. Mm. I think this is really important to bring out um, because a given work, even if you're not specifically saying, oh, I'm going to kind of channel um, Regency for this, mm -hmm. uh, a given work is going to have a voice. Um, my, um, you know, my Stormlight books actually have a different narrative voice from my Mistborn books. Mm -hmm. um, and as you become a writer, the more you write, the more you will realize that each kind of, each soul in each book, each, each book and each series have their own soul. And um, you will learn to bring those out and um, to make it part of what makes that series work. Um, and it even kind of is, is something that I was able to, I hope to, when I jump 300 years from the Mistborn books and write a new one, 300 years later, it still actually had the same narrative soul of the series. Mm -hmm. And I've had people come to me and say, wow, this is so strange that it feels like a Mistborn book because everything has changed. And yet the soul, the narrative voice is the same. And you can do tricks like this if you understand voice. Yeah. Well, I think that's significant, um, you know, now that you brought it up, that uh, I get a comment often about the formal language in my books, and people have used the term Edwardian mm. to describe it, um, which, which does describe it very well. I'm very precise in a lot of my language, which uh, then switching back to the author's voice makes it more interesting when I introduce a talking badger right. or something to it in the formal language. Yeah. One thing that is an interesting exercise, if you want to, um, to be able to kind of know that you do have, in fact, a voice, um, Take a story, stop about midway through, and a story that you, you kind of know where it's going, and um, have someone else that's a writer of about the same caliber and swap stories with them. Have them write for a little bit and then give it back to you to finish. Hmm. And um, I did this with Monty Cook, and this, is, this was actually an accidental discovery. We, we were both stuck, and so we swapped stories we, we wrote for about 15 minutes and then we gave it back and that got us both over the stuck point. And I know when I'm looking back at that exactly when it switches to being his words because they feel just a little bit wrong. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is Monty Cook, you know, the guy who's like Dungeons and Dragons and he has writing chops. It's not at all to do with it's written wrong. It's just not my voice. And if you want to see your voice, that is, that is one way to know that you've got it. Why don't we make that our writing prompt? Um, I want you guys to try that. Uh, find a writing buddy and swap stories halfway through. James, I want to give you a special thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing so many stories with us. Um, we're going to have to end right now, but uh, this has been Writing Excuses. Thank you guys so much. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. 
They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 